Hello and welcome back to Japan Memo, the IISS Japan Tour program podcast where we are joined by experts, strategists, and practitioners to unpack why Japan matters in today's regional and global geopolitical landscape. I'm Yuka Koshino, Research Fellow for Security and Technology Policy at the IISS. On this month's episode, we're delighted to welcome Martin Rasser, Mia Nowens, and Mariko Togashi to take a deep dive into questions surrounding economic security in the event of a Taiwan contingency. Martin is Senior Fellow and Director of the Technology and National Security Program at the Center for New American Security, where he explores the policy challenges located at the intersection of emerging technology and national security. Before joining CNAS, Martin served as a senior intelligence officer and analyst at the Central Intelligence Agency, where he worked on foreign emerging technologies, technology innovation, and weapons research and development. Maya is a senior fellow for Chinese defense policy and military modernization at the IISS. Maya's expertise lie in Chinese cross-service defense analysis, China's defense industry and innovation, as well as China's regional and strategic affairs and international relations. Before joining us here at the IISS, she worked for the European External Action Service as a policy officer in Taipei and as a trade analyst in the EU's delegation to New Zealand. And Mariko is the Matsumoto Samata Research Fellow for Japanese Security and Defense Policy at the IISS. Mariko works with me on the Japan Chair, and she's also the co-host of the Japan Memo. And her particular area of research is Japan's economic security, foreign relations, and security policy. So thank you all for being here to explore what is a highly complex issue for Japan and Indo-Pacific region and global economy as a whole. First, I have a question to all of you. U.S.-China rivalry, the COVID-19 pandemic, and Russian invasion of Ukraine have shed light on and further exacerbated global supply chain disruption. But they have also forced countries to be more conscious of their economic security. In the context of such a severe geoeconomic landscape, could you give us a quick rundown of the economic security policies of U.S., China, Taiwan, and Japan? So let's start with you, Martin, for the U.S. side. Great to be with you, Yuka. Thank you. So it's no surprise, of course, that U.S. policymakers have been very concerned about supply chain vulnerabilities. Those pertain to excessive dependence on certain countries, China in particular. And then a lot of that was exacerbated by the pandemic. So the Biden administration has launched a comprehensive supply chain review to understand more details about those vulnerabilities. And then more importantly, identifying policy options on how to address those. And we're starting to see that across the board. I think rare earths and critical minerals is one important area where we've been seeing a concerted effort to diversify the supply chain. The Biden administration is doing a lot of work with allies and partners around the world on addressing other supply chain vulnerabilities. Uh, Most prominently of late in the news is semiconductors, where a combination of industrial policies to expand fabrication in the United States, but also addressing some other vulnerabilities as, and those are being addressed by export controls. And we'll see further action being taken in outbound investment reviews as well. The whole goal of course, is not a full decoupling from a market like China's, but more of a rebalancing of global supply chains and globalization more generally so that there's more security more geographic diversity, and ultimately more resilience. Thank you, Martin. Maya, how about you and for China and Taiwan's policies? Sure, Yuka, and thanks for having me on the podcast. 
first of all, from China's perspective, there's been a gradual decoupling in areas that China sees as strategic in its own right for a number of years now. So decoupling or strategic decoupling isn't new to China uh, from China's perspective. And I think in some ways that's also what countries like the U.S. and uh, like-minded states are reacting to. We've seen decoupling in terms of what foreign companies are allowed to invest in in, in certain sectors in China, the heavy hand of the state in others that are seen as uh, vital, and of course, decoupling in the internet and cyberspace as well. From China's perspective, there's also this vulnerability that it's trying to address, and it's trying to sanction-proof its economy to a certain extent. That's going to be very difficult, so it's in certain ways trying to promote the renminbi as an alternative to the dollar. It's trying to come up with alternatives that might cushion its financial system from the rest of the world. These are going to be very slow and difficult changes for them to enact. There's also been an export control list that China has put out that, however, I think is, again, not really quite sure what the impact of that has been so far. Uh, China has sanctioned certain companies also from investing in China. But if we think about the defense companies that China has sanctioned, those weren't really investing in China in the first place. So by and large, there's a difficult road for China ahead, I think, to try and sanction-proof its economy. However, that being said, China, of course, on the other end of the spectrum is one that uses or at least threatens to use economic coercive tools increasingly at other countries, which is further spurring this development in responses uh, in uh, like-minded countries in, in the greater West. From Taiwan's perspective, having been on the end of this economic coercion in terms of fines being placed on Taiwanese companies in the mainland that are operating there, export controls around certain imports of goods from Taiwan, a real political element to some of the uh, investment from China into Taiwan, and also the luring of talent in some key sectors and skills related to semiconductors has, of course, been noted by the Taiwanese government, and they're slowly trying to put in place legislation to diversify, to one, protect their economy and their innovative base from this, and second of all, also to diversify their economic uh, relations beyond this heavy trade dynamic with mainland China, with the PRC. I think that has gained some momentum uh, following COVID, so you do see the return of business people to Taiwan who have had investments in the mainland. China's dynamic zero COVID policy hasn't helped with that, and that's only made that more popular. But by and large, that diversification is still an ongoing story. Thank you, Maya. How about Japan, Mariko? Thank you, Ka. Japan is bolstering its effort in economic security policymaking in the past few years. Although there is no official definition of economic security, there are two key concepts of Japan's economic security, which are strategic autonomy and strategic indispensability. Strategic autonomy means securing people's livelihoods and economic activities without excessive reliance on the other countries. And strategic indispensability means Japan being indispensable to other countries or to international society as a whole. In April 2020, the Japanese government added an economic division to the National Security Secretariat. And under the Kishida administration, the efforts in economic security policymaking has been even more bolstered. Last October, the very first economic security minister was appointed, Kobayashi Takayuki, and now we have the second economic security minister as Takaichi Sanae. This May, the new Economic Security Promotion Act passed. The new law includes four pillars, which are strengthening supply chains, conducting prior screenings to ensure the security of core infrastructure, promoting public-private advanced technological cooperation, and patent non-disclosure system for sensitive technologies. 
The implementation has already started. The basic policy and guidelines, which provide more concrete policy and designate the goods and broad tech fields that will be supported by this law, came out this September. And more, including the security clearance system, is expected to come out. Like Martin said, Japan's goal is not decoupling as well. It can be partially a result, but definitely not the goal from Japan's perspective as well. Thank you very much for that. I think that really sets a context for our discussion as we're going to begin from now. In March of this year, the IISS published a detailed report on cross strait stability and European security. Considering the implications and response options for European powers in the region, the report, which is available on www.s.org, also outlined four scenarios for Taiwan contingency. So, Maya, as one of the authors of this report, could you outline what these four scenarios are? When we think about Taiwan contingencies, we think about generally below the threshold and above the threshold of conflict. Below the threshold of war, there are things that we can think of in terms of gray zone actions, increasing assertive Chinese pressure, whether military or otherwise, on Taiwan, or things like an economic blockade on Taiwan through the use of the PLA Navy or other means. A PLA Navy blockade, however, is technically still an act of war. So um, whether you want to consider that below the threshold or above the threshold is another matter altogether. But then we can also think of two others, which would be potentially a joint strike fire on Taiwan. And lastly, an all out invasion scenario using amphibious forces and others to actively and kinetically attack Taiwan and take over the island to force a capitulation. We tend to think these in a scale of the least disruptive or the least prone to response to one that is the most disruptive and extreme and prone to response. But I think we really need to understand that these are not separate scenarios from each other, that these can be linked, they can be a sliding scale, and they don't necessarily always need to go in this order from gray zone activity on the one end to a full scale conflict on the other. So there's a little bit of give and take in all of these scenarios. Ultimately, the goal in these scenarios is to either force the Taiwanese government to capitulate before a conflict or as the result of a conflict and to agree to reunification or to force reunification with the mainland. Thank you, Maya. So Martin, um, seems like also in D.C., the debates around a potential contingency has been quite focused and there has been lots of war games and seen reportings around that. But any comments or anything to add around the scenario for a Taiwan contingency? I think what we all have to bear in mind is what's at stake, right? Obviously, there's Taiwan's democracy, but there's a massive economic aspect to any potential conflict. It's a strategic necessity that the United States, Europe, and other allies have access to Taiwan's semiconductor output. Without that, there would be economic devastation. And as we think about Taiwan contingencies, we have to bear in mind what the impact of any action, even short of outright conflict, would mean for our collective economies. And that's why there's so much effort being placed on diversifying supply chains, making sure that we do not just rely on TSMC for 92% of the most advanced semiconductors that we use. So we have to diversify that. At the same time, we have to be there to reassure Taiwan that we will have their backs in the event of a conflict. And that's a very delicate balance to strike, of course. The U.S. policy has been to have a peaceful resolution to this disagreement between mainland China and Taiwan. But increasingly, the Chinese Communist Party and 
she have been very provocative in their statements and their actions. And so there's growing concern in Washington that both the timeline for a forceful reunification is moving up and that the willingness of Beijing to use force to settle this matter is also increasing. And that's a very dangerous combination. And I think allies in Europe need to be particularly aware of the risk of this happening and start engaging now with the United States and other allies and partners as to how we respond in the event that that happens. And I, I don't think there's sufficient thinking and attention being paid to this matter, uh, particularly in European capitals. Uh, we, we cannot put our heads in the sand and hope that it goes away. There's way too much at stake for that. Thank you, Martin, um, for your views on how potential contingency could impact um, U.S. and, and other parts of the um, world, like Europe, and how some countries are preparing. How does Japan view the impact of Taiwan contingency on economic security, and, and how is it preparing for it? The discussion in Japan of Taiwan contingency has been increased rapidly, especially after Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. The idea of a Taiwan contingency is a contingency for Japan, one said by former Prime Minister Abe, and the sense of urgency are getting more common among policymakers and the public. In terms of preparation for the Taiwan contingency, the important policies taken so far are the supply chain policy, as I touched on at the beginning, and the semiconductor policy. Of course, these are not necessarily only focusing on Taiwan, but it certainly does assume Taiwan contingency. The Economic Security Promotion Act supports building resilient supply chains of designated materials. Under this law, a company who creates a plan to provide a stable supply of designated goods and obtain certificate can receive subsidies, low-interest loans, and other support. Recently, the government came up with 11 fields of specific critical materials that will be supported by the government, which includes semiconductors, critical minerals, batteries, robotics, and so on. Another important policy to prepare for the Taiwan contingency is Japan's semiconductor policy. In addition to the supply chain support that I just mentioned, Japan is making big investment decisions to bring back chip production to its soil, which includes subsidizing TSNC, Western Digital, and Micron technology. And Tokyo is also cooperating with allies and partners, especially with the U.S., to develop the cutting-edge chips and to increase supply chain resiliency. And on top of the government's efforts, when looking at Japan's efforts to prepare for Taiwan contingency, companies' efforts are also worth noting. Japanese companies are starting to shift their production line domestically even before the government's implementation of the law. We are seeing concrete steps toward decreasing the reliance on China, including investing in domestic sites or moving their production to other countries. And this is happening in various sectors such as robotics, auto, and other machineries. A recent Nikkei poll has shown that 46% of the 50 multinational companies who operate in Taiwan already has or are currently making contingency plans. Thank you, Mariko. Before I ask Maya for Taiwan, just a quick question of Martin. How are U.S. companies compared to Japanese companies preparing for this? We're starting to see some companies at least reducing their dependence on China to a certain extent, right? So some moves of manufacturing capabilities to other countries. When it comes to companies operating in Taiwan, a lot of firms are starting to develop contingency plans. Most immediately, how they get their 
personnel out, so the staff and their families to bring them to a safe place, but also starting to think through what that then means if they lose access to their property, their key infrastructure. This is still very much in the early stages, but the fact that companies are engaging on these matters and starting to think through what potential conflict would mean for them is an indicator, I think, of how serious people consider the risk to be at this point. I want to emphasize still a low probability event, but the impact is so high that prudent planning is absolutely necessary. And we're starting to see growing awareness of that throughout the U.S. private sector, from the largest of companies to uh, small and medium enterprises that that do have a, a presence or at least business ties to Taiwan. Thank you. Very interesting. Maya, how does Taiwan see the impact on its economic security and, and how is it preparing? I think in Taiwan, there isn't an expectation that this is imminent. The government is currently undertaking a number of preparations, both in terms of the economic domain, but also in the military domain, in terms of what still needs to be done to be able to respond effectively to any one of these types of scenarios. And I think the main concern at the moment is gray zone. That is extremely difficult to figure out for them. In addition to that, of course, on that other end of the spectrum of more all-out war contingency, there's a, a lot that still really needs to be done in terms of thinking about acquisition of certain capabilities, professionalizing the military, and, and thinking about civil defense. There is a lot ongoing, but this is going to be slow progress and for multiple reasons. I just want to add that in terms of countries preparing for uh, a Taiwan contingency, I think the private sector, not just in Taiwan, but also in the U.S. and, and, and definitely in Europe, have had to take lessons away from what they saw happening in Ukraine and even before that, what they saw happening in Hong Kong. So having spoken to companies in the private sector following, and particularly in the financial industry, following um, the national security law imposition in Hong Kong, still there, there's a, a question of how to deal with that. This is a more serious in terms of uh, personal security questions issue for some of these companies that are then even, I think, more complicated to think through in the medium term. Taiwan is diversifying its trade relations with other countries. That is an ongoing discussion with the United States, for example, also with the European Union and certain European countries becoming more interested in Taiwan. But I think there's also a concern in Taiwan about whether or not all of this talk about diversification, particularly in something like semiconductors, potentially weakens their position in terms of their own economic security and what that means for them moving forward. If everybody's trying to diversify away from Taiwan and not just China, because we need to remember that whilst we're uh, concerned about economic security questions and dependencies on China, we're also concerned in the West about dependencies on Taiwan. And so we're in some ways working with Taiwan to try to diversify those supply chains around critical semiconductors. But on the other hand, you know, that also in, in some ways competes with Taiwan. So I think from that perspective, Taiwan is a little concerned, at least the government is a little bit concerned that the more countries and companies worry about that security question related to Taiwan, the less that they're going to be interested in investing in Taiwan into the future. Thank you very much. It's very interesting to hear how countries view the challenges differently and also the timing of the companies thinking about how to diversify its, its economic relations or when to think about economic security questions. So let's go to semiconductors. So semiconductors, all of you touched about, but are critical component of modern electronics, such as computers, smartphones, vehicles, appliances, and weapon systems are 
critical for national security. And Taiwan has 66% of global market share in contract chip production, adding to its strategic importance, as Martin and, and all of you have mentioned. So the U.S. October export controls targeted China's whole chip sector, pretty draconian ban on specialized chips um, used for AI restrictions on high-end semiconductor manufacturing equipment exports to China, making it more difficult for U.S. citizens to work for Chinese companies in these areas. So let me ask Martin first, what do you think when you heard about this news? I think the Biden administration took the right action at the right time. There's considerable national security concerns that the administration expressed with regards to the specific end uses for those chips. So the strategy now is to essentially freeze China in place for production of logic chips that's at the 16, 14 nanometer process node. And that's an important dividing line. Anything above that, meaning higher node chips, those are planar transistors, meaning it's, you know, it's two-dimensional. Below the 16, 14 nanometer threshold, then you have a new technology where you stack the transistors and you want to do that in order to be able to put more transistors on the chip so you can continue Moore's law, pack more computing power on, on the same size chip. Uh, so these are 3D stacked. And that's a technology area that China's been pursuing aggressively and so far has fallen short. Now for the specific end uses, what the concern was is development of weapons of mass destruction. So primarily nuclear weapons. And there were also considerable concerns about other military technologies to include hypersonic weapons. But human rights was also one of the reasons that the administration provided, right? And so Beijing is building this mass surveillance system. It's using artificial intelligence and supercomputers in order to be able to aggregate and analyze all the data that they're collecting from cameras, sensors, electronic eavesdropping, and other information sources in order to be able to surveil and suppress the people of China. And then, of course, we've also seen considerable and egregious human rights violations in Xinjiang, for example. So all of these actions were meant to make it as difficult as possible for China to continue these efforts. Now, you mentioned the U.S. person controls. Those are some of the most significant actions and quite novel in how they approached it, because it's not just U.S. persons working for Chinese companies. It's also U.S. persons working for Japanese, Dutch, German firms, you name it. Every U.S. person is affected by this. And that goes not just to working in these companies, operating the equipment, but it pertains to transferring equipment within China. It pertains to maintenance and servicing of the machinery. This poses huge headwinds for China's efforts to try and indigenize these technologies. And it's really a major choke point for China's overall technological development, given that uh, the advances that we've been seeing and the difficulty of gaming out right through technology forecasting when you would want to act in the future. I think the administration made the right call in acting when it did. Thank you, Martin. Maya, how did China view this policy and how will it impact Chinese policy going forward? China has not yet retaliated uh, to this policy. This 
policy will have been viewed as a means by which to contain China. Not just military end-use element of these regulations, but the key bet that China is placing on things like AI and supercomputing for all aspects of the economy moving forward and for Chinese competitiveness moving forward areas that China actually wants to be a global leader in, I mean, this for them is going to be hugely disruptive. Can't say that they would be pleased by this. and I'm sure they're greatly worried by it. The question is, how would they retaliate? We have the G20 summit coming up. Biden and Xi are going to meet. I'm sure this will come up as a point of discussion. I think there's very clear signals from the U.S. that this is not something that's going to be uh, moved away from in any great way. What China might seek to do is place leverage or greater pressure on other countries and companies if it can seek to convince them to diversify their own uh, product lines, perhaps for a specifically Chinese line. But for companies like ASML, that's going to take a huge amount of resources and time to be able to do that and do it without using U.S. equipment, IP, software, hardware, personnel. So that's not an immediate solution. Similarly, I think there might then be retaliatory steps in terms of perhaps thinking about things like controlling or restricting the export of critical minerals and rare earths. Those are steps that Beijing might take, but I think we need to wait and see until after the Biden and Xi meeting to to see what will happen. Thank you, Maya. Perhaps even U.S. allies were surprised by the extent of Biden's measures or sanctions. So speaking about sanctions, allies, and coordination, in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the G7 has come together to impose an unprecedented sanctions regime in Russia. However, due to Europe's heavy reliance on Russian gas, certain sectors such as energy have been difficult to completely cut off. So Mariko, to what extent could Japan and the U.S. coordinate a global sanctions regime against China in a Taiwan contingency? Of course, I expect high level of coordination between Japan and the U.S., given the historical tie, trust, common interests and values, uh, which we have seen at the unprecedented coordination level in sanctions against Russia. However, I think we need to pay attention to the differences between the two countries as well, as sanctions are a double-edged sword. And there's no doubt that the limits and vulnerabilities, which can potentially hinder a high level of coordination in sanction coordination, will be more prominent uh, when sanctioning China than in sanctioning Russia. For instance, going back to your, your previous question to Martin and Maya, the, the latest U.S. export control to China of advanced semiconductor uh, in October, uh, this might not be something that Japan can follow immediately. The Biden administration has reached out to to Japan as well, and Tokyo is currently discussing which of the regulations imposed by the U.S. can be followed. I think one point in number is that uh, looking back when the U.S. banned Huawei in 2020, Japanese company has supplied about 1.1 trillion yen to Huawei the year before. The impact and the damage that sanction caused to ourselves can be quite different, implying that an exact same measure can pose a question each time that how much each countries are willing to and can sacrifice to impose the sanctions. We also have to keep in mind that export control directly impacts companies' global market share and competitiveness. So by focusing on the differences, Japan and the U.S. can discuss who is willing to sacrifice what, uh, which enables even higher level of coordination, in my opinion. Thank you for that, Marco. Martin, how do you think it would differ from sanctions regime against Russia? So what would a sanctions regime on a Taiwan contingency look like? 
do you think it will also be an effective deterrent to China? That's a very uh, difficult question. It would definitely look different from what the Allies imposed on Russia, right? Because I think one thing that we need to bear in mind is there was uh, very little economic entanglement with Russia, making export controls and sanctions less painful for the West. And so you can execute them more swiftly, which is exactly what we saw happen. The challenge with a China scenario is that, of course, the economic interdependencies are much, much greater. Determining the scope and scale of what export controls and sanctions would look like will be much more difficult. Now, the flip side of that coin is we do have a good understanding of where the choke points are. It's more so a matter of can we get all the relevant countries the tech-leading democracies to agree to do the same measures, because it will take multilateral action in order to be effective, particularly given the economic heft that China has. There can be very little daylight between the different governments in Europe and the Indo-Pacific and North America on these issues. So these discussions have to start taking place now to figure out what would be palatable and what would have the most impact. And I think those discussions are beginning to take place now. But of course, the fallout for the industries and in all these different countries is going to be significant. And that makes the whole thing much more challenged. Frankly, I don't think even if a robust approach is agreed to, I don't think that would necessarily be a deterrent to Beijing because from their standpoint, it's there's so much of the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party is rooted in an eventual reunification with Taiwan. And so much of Xi's personal legacy is tied to bringing Taiwan as part of one China. That, I think, would trump anything that we could do. Now, how long and how much of an economic hit the leadership in Beijing is willing to take, I don't know. I, I suspect it'll be substantial. But that's the challenge for Western policymakers is to figure out how much we are willing and able to do on our end and then see what the impact on Beijing and the Chinese economy would be as a result. Thank you, Martin. Any thoughts, Maya? I think that's absolutely right. And we also shouldn't forget that there's a personal connection between Xi Jinping through his father in Taiwan as well that adds to that ambition for a personal legacy, I think, during his lifetime. There are two other things that we need to think about, which is the emphasis that China is placing on becoming self-reliant in some key areas. So preempting you know, these choke points and if it can in the next few years, uh, at least according to the Party Congress work report that was released last month. The more self-reliant China becomes, the more it starts actually moving towards dual circulation, then the question is, how much leverage do we still have in economic terms in a Taiwan contingency to, to respond? Full decoupling, I, I don't think that's possible. And I, as Martin said, is not something that countries are, are, are aiming for. But the more we decouple, the less leverage we also have. So we need to think about that quite carefully. I think there's also something to be said about the measures that we're taking at the moment to make the trading relationship and the economic environment in our bilateral and multilateral relationships with China more equal versus the emphasis that we're putting at the moment on punitive measures with regards to um, Chinese actions and what that means from Beijing's threat perceptions moving forward. So are we in some ways 
already making the case for Beijing or contributing to a mindset in Beijing that the window of opportunity for them to achieve peaceful reunification is closing, however unlikely that might be, and therefore military action needs to be taken sooner rather than later. That's something also to be mindful of. The last thing that I would say is that I don't think that what we can do at the moment can deter China from taking this decision against Taiwan. And at the end of the day, there's only one person who will take this decision, and it will be Xi Jinping or whoever is the head of the Chinese Communist Party. So one, we can't predict it. And second of all, we can't deter it. What we can do, of course, is think about that coordination, talk more with each other about how we would respond and what is within the realm of the possible. That, I think, is something that we came to a conclusion about quite late uh, with regards to Russia. And so the lesson here is we need to start those discussions sooner rather than later and start preparing for the worst case scenario if indeed that happens, but also what we would do short of the worst case scenario. So would we be willing to suffer this economic pain following uh, in retaliation for China perhaps taking over a smaller island off the main island of Taiwan, something like Pratas? Is that something that we would want to respond economically to or not? Those types of discussions around scenarios that might be more likely in the near to medium term future, I think, are things that we should be focusing on rather than only focusing on that worst case scenario. Thank you very much, Naya. That's very interesting. Although I would love to continue this conversation. Unfortunately, we're at the end of today's session. So we always ask the Japan memo questions in the end. Let me first start with Martin, maybe. Um, do you have any book recommendations for listeners on Japan? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so this is a book, it's a little older. I think it first came out in 1996, but it's one that I read in graduate school and I found uh, very insightful, very interesting. It's called Rich Nation, Strong Army by uh, Richard J. Samuels. And it's all about how uh, Japan rebuilt post-war, you know, went on this path of the pursuit of technological excellence as a way to advance its national interests. And I think there's a lot to be gleaned from this book in understanding Japan's present day innovation ecosystem. There's a lot of good lessons to be learned, I think, as governments start rethinking industrial policy. There's a lot of interesting things that the Japanese governments did in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s that uh, we can draw from today as we think about crafting a beneficial technological future for ourselves. Thank you. Mariko, do you have any book recommendations for people who wish to understand more about Japan? I want to introduce this book about the Taiwan contingency and Japan's response this time. And it's the Jietai Saiko Kanbu ga Kataru Taiwan Yuji in Japanese. It's the self-defense force top executive speak on the Taiwan contingency. There's a very realistic conversation between self-defense forces and executives about Japan's limitations, current limitations and possibilities, which are not necessarily clear by just following the top headlines. So I strongly recommend this book to whoever would like to understand Japan's current capability and limitations in the Taiwan contingency scenario. Maya, do you have any recommendations? I don't have many recommendations, but I would say that one thing that might be really important to understand, particularly in terms of China and the way that it looks at current minilaterals by uh, the US and, and the Quad and Japan um, and that greater banding of relationships that Japan has with the West uh, via the China challenges, is how China looks at Japan and that historical lens. I think that's going to be something that's more important to understand in the coming years. 
And we've seen that the Chinese respond very negatively to Japan in some ways uh, in recent years. Understanding the, the historical background perhaps for that and how they might try to use certain narratives moving forward is going to be important. So you can think, for example, of the Middle Kingdom and the Empire of the Rising Sun by June Teufel Dreyer, or perhaps a different, more larger, uh, comprehensive book like China and Japan Facing History by Ezra Vogel. Thank you, Maya. So what do you think people often get wrong about Japan? There's a misperception, uh, particularly in the United States, that you know Japan is kind of stagnated, right? Um, but I've always found Japan such uh, you know a dynamic and, and innovative place, and I, I think you know what is actually going on in in, in Japan is underappreciated in uh, at least in the United States and perhaps in, in other countries as well. Um, there's a lot of tremendous technological innovation, a lot of very creative strategic thinking about technology policy and geopolitics. I would encourage people to to take a closer look at Japan and what it's doing in across the realm of technology. How about you, Mariko? I actually echo with Martin. I do think Japanese people are innovative. I don't want to say this as a Japanese, but by observing, I think so. And I think Japan is going through a lot of changes right now, not just in the security policy, but also even in society. I see a lot of even little shifts every day in the newspaper, in workplace, in society. So I think Japan is shifting more towards welcoming diversity and changes. Thank you, Martin, Maya, and Mariko. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on another podcast of Japan Memo. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Japan Memo on the podcast platform of your choice. For more insightful analysis, I also encourage you to look at past research by the Japan Share program and the IISS on our website. We also hope to connect with you on Twitter, where we are actively sharing the latest news and analysis on everything Japanese geopolitics and more. You can find me at Yuka Kushino, Maya at, at Maya Nowens, Martin at, at Martin Rasser, and Mariko at, at Togashi Mariko. Thanks again and see you next time.